Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We love having you here, and it's our mission to bring you all the latest and greatest tips, skills, and know-how to make you the best that you can be. We know that you have it in you, and we're going to show you how. Now, now, let's get started. everyone. This is Dr. Vicki Dills. I am the Clinical Director for Physical Therapy Innovations. And today, what I'm going to be talking to you about is rotator cuff arthropathy. Now, the reason I chose this subject today was I think that a lot of times we as clinicians will um, begin to treat and sometimes we treat the, the dysfunction, we treat the pain, teach to um, do home exercise programs to continue to maintain function and range of motion for the patients after they leave us. But a lot of times we forget underneath there what changes occur, what kind of arthritic changes occur with um, rotator cuff tears, what happens on a cellular level, what happens structurally. So today what I'd like to discuss with you guys is some changes that occur and some underlying conditions that are going to um, typically occur as um People with massive and chronic rotator cuff tears progress. Some of the changes that are going to occur that's significant to understand in your treatment and to keep in mind. Um, certainly, we cannot quote unquote cure these changes, but it's something that as we prescribe exercises and progress their home exercise program and give them something to go home with, we need to be aware of what's going on. So that's what we're going to talk about today. This is going to be a brief overview. Um, sometimes in the future, um, we may talk about if there's interest, we'll talk about these more extensively. But without further ado, let's talk about that. So rotator cuff arthropathy is a kind of a pattern. It's a sequence of events of glenohumeral joint degenerative changes associated with chronic rotator cuff tears. Now, these changes don't occur suddenly. They progress over time, and you'll understand on that a little bit more as we move on. Um, it's going to... Uh, consists of a spectrum of shoulder pathologies characterized by number one, rotator cuff insufficiency. A chromiohumeral distance um, is going to be dis diminished and that's going to um, lead to possible impingement syndromes. And you're also going to see some glenohumeral joint arthritic changes. So when you get a massive rotator cuff injury, it's going to contribute to mechanical unloading of the cuff. The unloading of the cuff is going to result in a lack of normal stresses, and those normal stresses that are on your joint, they keep tissue healthy, and it's going to also um, affect the homeostasis at a, a cellular level. So a lot of times when you have these cuff tears, your cuff is not sufficient, so you lose the compression, which allows proper um, the compression in the joint as the patient lifts their arm, reaches out, those compressive forces are no longer in play. So you're going to get migration of the humeral head that we're going to discuss in just a little bit. So those changes are going to not only create structural changes over time, but also there's going to be some cellular changes as well. So when you see your patient come in with chronic or massive rotator cuff tears and they've elected perhaps to have conservative therapy or perhaps they're not a candidate for surgery, um, like I said, you will look at your range of motion, you'll look at strength, you'll look at the anterior deltoid um, for some compressive forces and some 
um, forward flexion of the arm, but you need to keep these things in mind as well. So what happens typically, depending on what muscles are affected, and that's something you should know if you just, if you don't, that's something you need to reach out to your doctor. So if you just get a script that says massive rotator cuff tear or uh, whatever your doctor terms them, um, you need to know what muscles are affected if you can. Also understanding is there any um, retraction of the muscles, calcifications, things like that. So if you can get a copy of the report, it will behoove you to do that so you understand exactly what's going on with your patient when you see them. So typically with chronic rotator cuff tears, gonna be, there's going to be a superior migration of the humeral head. Also, some bony changes that are going to occur, you're going to see erosion of the greater tuberosity. What's going to happen, the humeral head is going to kind of um, change in its structure, and, and it's going to have features similar to the femur. So this process is known, known as humeralization. So changes to the, the humeral head so that it's becoming looking more like a femur, known as humeralization. As you look at the acromial, uh, acromial coracoacromial arch, you're also going to note similar changes. Um, it's going to start to look and um, function like the acetabulum of the hip, and that's known as acetabularization. So what effectively is happening is because of those changes in the adaptations, the socket is kind of being created for the to accommodate the change of the humeral head. So as that occurs with the breakdown of cartilage and the breakdown of bone, you're going to develop, possibly develop, glenohumeral joint arthritis. Along with that, you're going to see some joint uh, space narrowing. So again, with these changes, as it progresses more and more, you're going to lose the normal shape and the compressive effect of the rotator cuff, which is important not only for function, but also tissue health and homeostasis of the joint itself. Diagnosis uh, typically is made uh, with x-rays, and those x-rays will, uh, when you look at them, you're going to see some glenohumeral arthritis, and you're going to notice some uh, decreased acromiohumeral intervals. So when these, depending again on what muscles are affected, and that certainly is, can be a talk in the future, um, you're going to see the humeral head translate superiorly and anteriorly as the patient actively lifts their arm. Um, the consequence of this translation occurring over time repetitively is going to result in breakdown of the cartilage and bone. In addition, there's going to be, as these break down, it's going to release enzymes that are Further, going to cause further damage to any um, surrounding and supportive tissues. This is going to most likely um, result in progressive pain, can limit the range of motion, and it's going to contribute to more deterioration of the soft tissue um, and of any bone and uh, cartilage. Now, due to this damage to the, to the, to the um, joint, you're going to start seeing leakage of capsular fluid and that fluid itself is going to affect, have an impact on the uh, joint surfaces, and this can have a role in the atrophy of the cartilage as well. You can also see a decre decrease in water, and you may see a collapse of the subchondral bone. You, uh, over time, will see some osteoporosis in that subchondral region, and they're also, depending on what studies you look at, can see some crystalline-induced arthropathy um, where they may find some calcium phosphate or crystal deposits in the joint 
in and around the joint. As far as classifications, there's several classifications. One of the most commonly uh, utilized classifications of the progression is called the Hamada classification of rotator cuff arthropathy. Grade one is a chromial interval greater than six millimeters. Grade two, a chromial humeral intervals less than five millimeters. Grade three, a chromial interval less than five millimeters with acellular tabulization of the acromion. Grade four has two subcategories. 4A is glenohumeral arthritis without acetabulization, and your acromial humeral interval is going to be less than seven millimeters. 4B, you're going to get glenohumeral arthritis with acetabularization and a acromial humeral interval less than five millimeters. Grade five in the last one is humeral head collapse. So what you were going to see, depending again on muscles involved, is wasting of the muscles in the supra and infraspinous fossas when you see your patient. You're going to see most often significant limitation in active and passive range of motion. Um, you know, it's funny because there's outliers out there or there's folks who... Um, end up having full range of motion. I've seen patients who have full active range of motion and have significantly torn rotator cuff muscles and it's you know, been going on for a while. And those, the patients go in for MRI after um, they're being, ass being assessed by the doctor. And the doctor's also surprised when the patient comes in with um, full active range of motion in all directions, and yet they have massive tears of um, supraspinatus, uh, infraspinatus. So, um, so there, there are exceptions to the rule. So, but most often you'll see limited active and passive range of motions. Depending on where they are in the phase, you may have some crepitus in the glenohumeral joint. And as the um, as this condition progresses, um, sometimes you'll see a little um, bump on the AC joint. It's known as the geyser sign. Um, this is caused because of the the um, the damage underneath the. AC joint and it's creating liquid leakage of a fluid into the AC joint capsule and it's going to give this little lump. Um, so that's something you can also look for in some chronic um, rotator cuff injury with some changes to the structure. So demographics, the typically females, it's seen in females more than males, most commonly seen in the second de seventh decade of life. More often the dominant shoulder than the non-dominant. Some of the risk factors are uh, rotator cuff tears, rheumatoid arthritis, crystalline-induced arthropathy, hemorrhagic shoulder, such as in hemophiliacs and um, those folks who are on anticoagulants. So um, some of the pathophysiology. So with a cuff, ro rotator cuff tear, um, you might see the mechanical factors. You're getting that humeral head translation, both superiorly and anteriorly. Um, you're um, seeing compensations in the other muscle groups to make up for this. Um, your joint changes that are happening structurally on a bony and um, cartilage level. Typically, decreased range of motion and decreased shoulder function humeral head migration, and there may be instability with possible recurrent dislocations. Nutritionally, there's going to be a, 
loss of a watertight joint space, decreased joint fluid, see some cartilage atrophy, and some um, subchondral collapse, and that's um, some disuse osteoporosis. Crystalline-induced arthropathy, um, it's a breakdown of proteins in the synovium, which destroy the rotator cuff and the cartilage, um, and in stage um, of this disease leads to calcium phosphate crystal deposits. So on physical exam, again, just kind of a recap, you're gonna see supraspinatus infraspinatus atrophy. You're gonna see a prominence of the humeral head anteriorly um, as with elevation of the arm and subcutaneous effusion, and that's from loss of fluid in the joint capsule. Range of motion, limitations in active and passive range of motion, crepitus when the glenohumeral and subacromial joints with range of motion. You may also see some pseudoparalysis when the patient's um, demonstrating inability to abduct, abduct a shoulder. Some of your, of your provocative tests, you're gonna have an external rotation lag sign. Patient's gonna have an inability to maintain passively externally rotated shoulder with elbow at 90 degrees. Mm -hmm and a positive Hornblower's sign. So typically, depending on the patient, and that's certainly a discussion the surgeon will have with the patient, um, depending on the patient's age, their activity level, the degree of, of damage, a lot of factors go into this, but typically non-surgical management is the first line of treatment in most of these patients. Sometimes we'll see these patients preoperatively or sometimes it's a trial to see if they can manage it conservatively and, and um, surgery is a is a last minute, last effort to restore function and help them manage their pain. So treatment for minimally symptomatic patients is gonna involve the modification of other activities. They may um, have subacromial steroid injections and certainly a trial of physical therapy. And again, the role of physical therapy isn't to um, address the pathology itself. We cannot uh, restore those, but what we try to do is to correct any modifiable physical impairments that we think are contributing to the pain and dysfunction. And that may be shoulder, it may be neck, it may be hip. You may just have to look at your patient globally and see what's um, contributing to their pain and dysfunction. Your goal is to restore full pain-free range of motion, restore the flexibility of all the muscles, check for muscle imbalances, again, not just in the shoulder complex, but certainly um, throughout that's going to be contributing to um, your patient's dysfunction. Some of this will be compensation. However, um, there are some compensations that you may want to teach or 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 enhance, depending on how they are. Um, you want to I'll work on uh, scapulothoracic and glenohumeral muscle control and stability, proprioception, all those things that you typically work on. You also want to make sure you educate your patients uh, to avoid provocative postures and provocative movements and activities, and that can be dependent on the patient, certainly, and um, do a lot of mus neuromuscular retraining, and you want to... Um, have them avoid or at least minimize the occurrence of any aggravating uh, motions or activities. So um, sometimes they are 
candidates for surgery, and there's several options depending on um, what the, the surgeon finds. Again, again, I'll repeat, that's age of the patient, what muscles are torn, what muscles are preserved, um, patient's goals, um, patient's probably you need to look at patient's compliance, make sure that you have a patient that, that's appropriate and will be compliant with the with the protocol. So sometimes there's arthroscopic debridement um, that usually studies, depending on how you read, has unpredictable results. Um, there's uh, hemiarthroplasty. There's reverse shoulder replacements. There's a lat uh, transfer, a pec transfer. So those are some of the surgery options that may be offered to your patient. So knowing what those will be and having a discussion with your patient because they will have questions for you. So in a recap, we cannot change the pathology itself. But certainly understanding what's going on on a cellular level and structural level understanding. The bony changes, the um, changes in the cartilage, changes in the enzymes, things that are going to cause further breakdown. Very important to understand yourself as a therapist and to educate your patient uh, in layman's terms. So if you have further interest in we um, in looking at some of these things in a more detailed level, happy to do that. Just send me out an email and uh, tell me what you want to know more about, and we'll, we'll do a um, an in-service or perhaps um, another podcast on that. Thank you for your time, and I'll see you next time. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.